to the podcast of ideas. What you're about to hear is a recording from the Academy of Ideas book club, which took place on Tuesday the 19th of May. The book being discussed was Machines Like Me by Ian McEwan, with an introduction from Max Anderson. In the chair is Jeff Kidder. Okay, well we might as well get started. A few more people may join us. So welcome everybody, uh, people who've been to the previous book clubs, people who here uh, for this evening. Uh, welcome to the third Academy of Ideas Lockdown Book Club. This evening we're discussing Machines Like Me by Ian McEwan. Uh, anybody who will have read the book will see there's lots of different strands and things to, to discuss. And I'll introduce Max in a couple of minutes who's introducing the book for us. Just to say on Zoom, most people are familiar with Zoom now, but if you would like to speak during the discussion, um, press, uh, go to the bottom of your screen, click on the participants button, and then raise your hand on the right-hand side. Uh, if you have a problem with doing that, if you're on a device where that doesn't work or whatever, uh, if you wave your arms or wave your hand around, I will uh, no doubt see you and take you to speak. Also, you can write any comments or notes in the chat function, which will be seen by everybody, uh, which is also at the center of the bottom uh, of your screen. So I'm chairing it. I'm Jeff Kidder uh, from the Academy of Ideas. Um, and then uh, oh, the final thing to say on Zoom is if you get cut off for any reason, your internet goes or anything, you just rejoin with the same link. Um, so, that, so that's that. Um, the other in, uh, notice is just to say at the beginning, um, you know, we're working through this lockdown, which is uh, moving now almost into its third month, or it is moving into its third month. Um, and uh, we're obviously not able to do our usual trade. So if anybody from this evening uh, is able to give a donation or is able to pay for a cost of a pint or what it would cost if you went to a public meeting, then by all means go to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate uh, and give us a, a, a small or, or not so small contribution, whatever you can afford, and it's greatly appreciated. But if you go to the Academy of Ideas website, to forums, salons, and events, um, it's all there. But most nights there is some event uh, pretty much for the next three weeks at least. The next book club, just to announce before we start, slightly different theme from, for, for this, we'll be discussing um, The Modern Love Story, which is Normal People by Sally Rooney, which many people will have read. Some people, uh, I'm not one of them, will have seen the BBC adaptation. Uh, there's an audio book. Anyway, it's a phenomenon. Um, and we can discuss the book itself, and we can also discuss why it's a phenomenon. And my colleague, uh, Ella Whelan, who I have to say is uh, uh, an expert on anything to do with normal people and is a, 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 um, a very interested in the subject. We'll be discussing that on Zoom here on seven o'clock on Thursday, the 11th of June. So there's a date for your diary. Right. So it's this evening we have Max Anderson, who is acting uh, duty editor in audio at The Guardian. Um, and is also uh, an organiser of debates at the Battle of Ideas Festival on various science themes from genome editing, anti-vaxxers, and also uh, more related to his day job, uh, the future of podcasts. So Max is going to give an introduction on uh, what he thought of the book, and then people can ask questions, make points, 
um, there's a wealth of there's a wealth of different themes in the book, so don't feel you have to stick to any uh, particular uh, a particular strand of thought or, or, or whatever. It's entirely up to you. Uh, and so Max will do his introduction, and then we'll have a sort of fairly open discussion, as is our way. So Max, in your own time. Great. Yeah. Um, thanks, Jeff, uh, and thanks to you all for being here as well. Um, I think also thanks to Jeff for giving me a reason to to read uh, machines like me. Um, I was slightly apprehensive about reading it for since it came out, um, and that's not because I dislike Ian McEwan. Um, probably the the opposite. He's he's played sort of a, a very formative role in my sort of fiction reading. Um, but when I read that he was doing a book uh, that kind of revolved around artificial intelligence, I was um, slightly apprehensive because um, I find that the use of AI in, in fiction can often be quite sort of clunky and um, unnecessary in a sort of zeitgeisty kind of way. And, um, and most importantly, not very helpful for what I think are really important conversations, ongoing conversations about sort of artificial intelligence. Um, and so, you know, like Jeff said, there's, there's a huge amount of, of themes in the book. Um, I've kind of chickened out and decided to focus on one, um, but I'm sure, you know, for those who have read it, um, some of those will come up. Uh, and, you know, these are things that we are kind of familiar with. Um, you know, will the machines take over? Uh, will they be conscious? Is the so-called sort of Turing test still relevant? Um, and, you know, what does it mean to be intimate with a robot? Um, like many of you, I'm sure, having read the blurb about there being a love triangle, uh, I was sadly disappointed that there was only one sort of sexual encounter between the robot and a human. Um, but uh, whilst, you know, the Machines Like Me covers kind of all of these, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of them, um, I think the thing that I want to focus on is is one of the things that I think in fiction, at least, is, is sort of uh, less travelled. And it's an aspect of the AI argument um, that I think is 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 really important, but but um, even outside of fiction is is still kind of largely uh, ignored, uh, perhaps. Um, and that sort of revolves around a kind of single question about um, what kind of intelligence are we going to create um, in these artificial intelligences? Um, and so, what do I mean by that, and and why is it important? Um, so I think the first thing to say about intelligence generally, um, like many things sort of in neuroscience and psychology, trying to sort of define it is, is pretty difficult or at least get a, a definition that people agree on. Um, but the one that I think is sort of most useful probably in this um, example is something like the ability to apply knowledge to manipulate one's environment. Um, and it's a very simple definition. Um, but if we take that definition, we can kind of see just how widespread intelligence is, um, say, in the animal kingdom. And I think, you know, the past sort of half a century, if not more or so of research has shown us that intelligence isn't just one singular thing. It, it comes in many shapes and forms. And especially if we take um, that definition that I gave earlier. Um, and I think it's largely agreed on and, and uh, something that I would argue is that um, there is a sort of vast uh, universe, if you like, of, of possible um, types of intelligence. Um, and the type of intelligence that different species produce, say, if we look across the animal kingdom, 
um, is molded by the sort of evolutionary environment and the evolutionary pressures that have been put on the species as, as they've evolved um, and, and continue to evolve within. Um, so, you know, the often used example is, is something like an octopus, um, which has, you know, an, a nervous system entirely distinct from ours, um, but it is highly intelligent. And in many ways, you could argue more so than humans. Um, they're sort of close ancestors, you know, also, uh, sorry, close relatives, cephalopods as well, you know, uh, cuttlefish who have this incredible ability to sort of, uh, within a very short period of time, um, essentially camouflage themselves to their backdrop, um, you know, changing the texture and the tone and the color of their skin within an instant. That in itself, I would argue, is a, is a form of intelligence and one that we have, you know, no access to. Um, so I suppose with that in mind, this idea that kind of the intelligence that a species had has um, sort of is very much defined by the evolutionary pressures that they've been exposed to over time. Um, I think it's obvious that the same can be said for humans. And so for us and, you know, uh, most of our primate cousins, that intelligence is highly geared towards sociality. Um, so the ability to form bonds and build relationships, uh, protect those around us and, and I suppose in return be protected. So essentially the idea to form and, and maintain societies, which has been so essential for our survival. Um, and I should say this doesn't mean that they're always kind of pro-social. Obviously, the same kind of intelligence allows us to deceive each other. Um, but I think it's an intelligence that is kind of geared towards the other. Um, and I think, you know, this is true of all aspects of human intelligence. And obviously, there are many different types of intelligence. Um, and I think what the book does so well as highlight it really starkly in in kind of moral intelligence um and i think what the book manages to do so well within that is, is show just how kind of messy this kind of moral intelligence um can end up being in humans um and then i think the way that it contrasts that with the sort of intelligence that, that an ai like adam um possesses is a completely different kind um and i suppose the easiest way to kind of talk about that is is if we think about kind of making moral decisions um and if we're talking about sort of uh, there are two aspects i suppose to a moral decision which i think are important here you have kind of problems of situation and what i call problems of scale so situation is relatively easy um it's not always uh, a bad thing to tackle a stranger in the street um say during a terror attack and I think in the book, I think Adam does understand that kind of, of, of moral intelligence. Um, there's a kind of utilitarian aspect. It, it feels quite rational and logical and almost computational in a way. Um, but what I think Ian McEwen does so well in the book to show is that what, what Adam lacks is, is this idea of scale. And I suppose what I mean by that is the kind of distance from the problem at hand. So if we take a kind of moral decision or a moral judgment and I think in the book you know he points to um, the famous trolley problem um, you know it's easy to make a moral judgment about something that's very dif uh, distant from you if it's you know in a different country or with people you've never met or even if it's a hypothetical it's a lot easier to make um, a moral kind of uh, judgment but if the same thing's happening to your friend or your neighbor that judgment uh, may change but even if it doesn't change it makes it a lot more difficult 
and you know even more so if it's your your mum or your brother or someone close to you and I think as beings that are kind of geared towards this kind of sociality these decisions about kin and close friends will be harder and and I think what the book does so well is to show that this isn't the case for Adam um, the AI um, and I think that becomes particularly kind of clear um, when uh, without sort of giving away the ending uh, too much you know Adam's sort of final parting gifts to Miranda and Charlie um, which are a kind of prison sentence for perjury uh, giving away all their savings and thereby threatening their ability to adopt um, all of that makes sense in a kind of very logical, rational, utilitarian way. But it shows just how kind of misaligned that type of intelligence that, that, that Adam has, that is created in Adam, uh, is with our kind of own. And obviously that's within the kind of moral intelligence um, aspect of it. But I think, you know, you can extrapolate that out to other forms of intelligence. Um, and I think I, I should say that this isn't a kind of purely, you know, uh, genetically based kind of evolutionary um, aspect. I think obviously our kind of conditioning plays a massive role too. And so, you know, learning social norms over life, you know, that is part of, of, of how we develop our kind of intelligence as, as social beings. And, you know, I think another very clever thing that Ian McEwan does is he introduces the character Mark, who for those who've read it will know is the kind of the young boy that, that they're attempting to adopt. Um, and I think the reason he sort of, or one of the reasons he, he does this um, is to show how important childhood is in this kind of um, conditioning uh, in how our kind of uh, intelligence is developed over, over a lifetime. And I think there's a, there's a scene where um, sort of, at least according to Charlie, Adam, the AI, finds it very strange to sort of see how Mark is kind of um, dancing and using play to learn about um, the world around him. Um, and it sort of highlights how important this kind of learning can be, um, but also how, how different it is to the kind of intelligence that, that Adam, the AI, has. And I think a huge part of that is because we learn through experience, um, through childhood and adolescence. Our intelligence is constantly updating, whereas Adam obviously comes sort of pre-programmed. Um, and, you know, so could an AI, you know, which arrives in that state ever really do that. And I think there's interesting points to talk about, um, you know, there's a movement in the AI field at the moment, looking at what happens in childhood when we're sort of developing that intelligence and whether that's something that we should be aiming for um, with our AIs. And, and I think uh, Ian McEwen really sort of shows that, that kind of stark difference massively in the book. And, um, as, a, as, a, as a sort of final note, um, just to, to back up what I'm kind of saying, I think, you know, the choice of Charlie as our narrator is kind of very telling um, as a kind of direct insight to how socially geared our intelligence and our kind of existence, if you like, as humans is, you know, Charlie is plagued by anxieties about his relationship, his sort of sexual performance, his financial situation, the sort of social turmoil that's going on around him. Um, and we see what it means to have a kind of intelligence that's kind of geared towards the other, um, which is contrasted with Adam's. Obviously, we don't have direct insight into his sort of conscious stream, if indeed he is conscious. But, you know, he sort of completes the works of Shakespeare. He starts producing poetry. He completes much of the English canon. You know, he worries about world suffering. 
Um, and so Adam is kind of drawn to the kind of magnificent, the, the macro, which I think as humans, we are drawn to at times too. But, but what we tend to do is kind of, um, is, is kind of focus on that six inches, if you like, in front of our face. And, and for Adam, I think that is, is, is very confusing, um, but, f but, but also quite tragic, I think, for anyone who's kind of finished the book. Sorry if I'm giving anything away. Um, but, you know, for us as humans, it's, it's, it's how we got to where we, we are today. And so I suppose just in closing, it sort of brings us back to this question of, of what kind of intelligence will we create in these AIs? Um, because obviously the type of intelligence that, that humanity possesses, that we possess, is tailored to our societies and to our survival. And that's because it's evolved with us and, and you know, we learn it through experience as we grow up. Um, so it's been molded by our history as, you know, both as, spe as a species, but also as individuals. Um, but for the kind of AI that, that Adam is and, you know, the AI that we're sort of talking about in the real world, there is no history there. And so I suppose, why do we care what kind of intelligences we will create? I suppose if they are drastically different from our own and they are conscious and, um, you know, I think intelligent AIs that have human level intelligence will be. And, and again, I think that might be something that comes up in conversation, but, you know, do we really want to bring them into this world? Because, you know, thrusting these kind of hyper-intelligent AIs into this very complicated world of human intelligence could be very misguided. I think what the book points out so well is that, you know, um, these AIs struggle. I won't give away the ending, but they really struggle. And, you know, from the outside, at least, it looks like they suffer. And so if consciousness is involved, and again, I argue it would, you know, is, is that potentially cruel? Um, and I suppose as a kind of final provocation, is that something that we as humans should care about? Um, yeah, so that, that was my, it's a very uh, small part of the book, but, but hopefully that gives you a bit, of, uh, a bit of meat to chew on. That's great, Max. That's plenty of food for thought and discussion. And so now it's open to the floor to ask questions on that or comment on that and any other aspect of the book uh, which, 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 which you'd like to. Thank you very much. Helen, I'll unmute you. That was a really interesting introduction. Thank you very much, Max. Um, I, too, was really grateful to get an opportunity to read this book because I used to read Ian McEwan all the time and then I kind of, I don't know why, I stopped. And I'd forgotten how much I really like him. It was a real pleasure. And I, the other pleasure that I found with reading this book was the, uh, I don't really normally like science fiction. It's just my thing, not my thing. But... I found that actually bizarrely in a sort of pandemic times where there's no kind of normal, it was actually quite enlightening to sort of read about another time and a different sort of parallel universe. It seemed to work a bit better than normal. Um, so, and it may be just because he's a good writer. It just didn't irritate me as much. Um, I had a slightly different take on the book, um, but not, I don't disagree with anything you've said. And I thought there were some brilliant things you said when you sort of sort of talk about intelligence geared towards the other and all of that. I think it's really, you know, that is the essence of, 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 of the difference. But I thought it was really, and I'm sure, sure it was really a book about um, humanity. And I think it really, it takes the guise of talking about artificial intelligence, but it's really... Um, 
like all good science fiction, it's really about ourselves and it's writing about ourselves and trying to understand our own makeup. And I think by do, having this device of having the AI um, Adam, you can kind of really, it, I mean, it got me thinking about, you know, what does it really mean to be human? And, and um, uh, you know, what does it mean to be, um, you know, to have morality and all the things that you've raised. And I think that's what the point of the book is, is it really, well, to me, it was about a, a great kind of sense of trying to understand, you know, the messiness of humanity. And I thought the device of setting it in the past was really interesting because he kind of just does these little things where a tiny change in a human decision, you know, Turing doesn't commit suicide and then the world changes or a tiny change in uh, well, it's not tiny, but, you know, a change in the Brighton bomb and Tony Benn gets blown up and, you know, the whole of history has changed. And so I thought it had that kind of sense of looking at how we make our own history, we kind of create our own world. And then they have the parallel of creating Adam alongside creating Mark. And I just thought it was really a beautiful way of doing it. And I, I picked out a couple of other things. I thought that um, the... Um, you know, it was, uh, sorry, I had one more point, which I think, I, I think that the, um, the other thing that I really liked about it was that he shows that, um, you know, and I think this is a point you've made, that intelligence isn't just about knowledge. It's, it's something much more profound than that. And I think that there's this great scene where he, when he's with the father and he's, they're talking about, um, uh, you know, he's talking about Shakespeare to Adam and then he talks to Charlie and Charlie's a complete, you know, he's useless and he thinks he's the machine. But there's something completely wonderful because Charlie didn't have to have read the whole of Shakespeare to have the human experience. And, you know, it's kind of like it's we absorb it kind of through osmosis and not to be anti-knowledge. But I think there's something really brilliant in that scene that I found really, really good. So I thought it was a, it, I was really grateful to have an opportunity to read the book. I might come back on a couple of other things, but I thought that was just a slightly different take on it. That's great, thanks. Joel, I'm going to unmute you. Max, I liked your introduction and I think the AI thing I found really intriguing. And also I was a bit apprehensive as well. And, um, you know, I hadn't read any Ian McEwan for a bit, but I thought, I mean, I thought it was very clever and compelling. There were moments I did feel it was a bit contrived and, um, you know, that was only kind of occasionally. And I think it was where, you know, it's that thing about using an artistic format to sometimes some of the science and AI side got a bit kind of science explaining. But I, I felt um, also I really liked the way that it kind of concertinaed several decades of scientific thought and the people like Alan Turing and Demis Hassabis and people into one kind of decade as it were and so you kind of got this sense of this sort of parallel sort of world and universe and within that there was a lot of kind of um, familiarities you know they're talking about the Thatcher years and um, you mentioned about the Brighton bombing you know the Falkland war and yet there was enough difference to kind of shift your perception all the time and sort of think that things have, could have turned out sort of differently. Um, I felt it was a very sort of Promethean story in a way, you know, the kind of, you know, 
the desire for this kind of AI human who then sort of almost sort of ends up, you know, when they go to visit Miranda's father, you know, sort of is able to show off all his knowledge and learning and, you know, he feels a bit sort of lost for words. And I think, you know, um, you also mentioned about that moment where her father sort of, um, you know, mistook him, Charlie, for actually sort of being the robot. But also, I mean, I do think there's this, you know, throughout it, what he does do well is, as you were saying, Max, about weaving through that, you know, morality of what it is to be conscious and the difference between mind and that kind of thing that you mentioned about messy. And in fact, I think there was a really sort of good quote at one point that I sort of picked out, you know, but life where we apply our intelligence is an open system, sort of melly, uh, messy, full of um, tricks and feints and ambiguities and false friends. And he sort of goes on to talk about sort of language and how it ends up sort of reflecting and distorting and constructing our world at different focal lengths. And I feel that that was encapsulated, that kind of distortion in the way that he had crammed all those different times together. And then towards the end, um, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, you were worried about spoilers, but I'm assuming most people have read the book to be here, but where he eventually is berated by Turing, you know, he goes to meet him, takes the robot back and is berated for his cruelty, for having destroyed the thing that he so wanted. And again, that moral question of, well, once something becomes a sort of conscious being. And I thought the other thing that makes me think is that sort of, ongoing thing in science at the moment between um, people who have a really materialist view of the world, like a lot of the scientists. When I was reading this, I was thinking of Max uh, Tegmark's book, Life 3.0. And um, there was this whole group of people who included, um, I think, Hawking, who kind of, uh, I can't remember, oh, the Future of Life Institute, you know, and they were debating at the time um, you know, where AI should go. And, you know, they, you know, came up with the resolve that they wanted it to be uh, a beneficial intelligence. But, you know, um, and it wasn't till the end, till I saw his note that he'd spoken at length with Demis Asabis, because, you know, there was that quote, I can't remember exactly, I hope, but it was like Demis Asabis's thing when he started Deep Mind was solve intelligence then use intelligence to solve everything else. And it's that, I suppose, that sense of the disparity between the mind and what we know about consciousness. Because of course, you know, what is intelligent is, you know, hugely debated as well. Thanks, Joel. I'll take one or two more people to come in and make their observations and then I'll get Max to come in and uh, uh, respond, make his comments. Um, Jenny, you're up next. Um, I very much take Helen's point about the novel being more about humanity than about AI. But this this uh, novel irritated me beyond belief. Uh, so many at so many levels, I must say. The, I think I think the thing that irritated me most, just to get that out of the way, was the was this use of this distorted history. But it was the history of now, really, or just the other day, kind of thing all mixed up. And here you get an AI robot, right? That's clearly way ahead of anything that's around at the moment. 
Um, and you think to yourself, well, surely if you were capable of building that kind of artificial intelligence, society would have moved on hugely. You know, in that time, you're situating this advanced AI creature, you know, in, his, in essentially, you know, 1980s, you know, 90s history all distorted. That, that really irritated me. But I think perhaps the point I really want to make, Max, is that I completely disagree with your definition of intelligence. Because you, you went through multiple intelligences, but what we're talking about aren't different kinds of intelligence. We're talking about human intelligence, which is fundamentally different, um, you know, to all these other, you know, anthropological um, intelligences. And I think, I think that just, just to give a couple of examples, you know, Alan Turing, right, had this, this idea that the human mind was really nothing more than you know, a, a digital uh, computer, uh, a, a computing machine. And in fact, the way he looked at childhood was that you got this cortex um, that was really very disorganized and that through training would become an organized, uh, you know, digital computing machine. But of course, our intelligence doesn't develop like that. Our intelligence isn't an individual thing, right? It's a social thing. It develops through the development of society. And I suppose the, the, the easiest way, I think perhaps the shortcut to explain this is if you look at children, okay, and how they learn. Now there are a number of mental processes which go on in children, which may look very, very similar to adults you know, processes, mental processes, but they are in many ways fundamentally different because through, through learning, through the absorption of culture and science, scientific understanding, right, our mental processes undergo fundamental changes so that we become capable of much higher mental functions, the ability to abstract, the ability to understand systems, and so forth and so on. And children's learning is a process actually of beginning to grasp, you know, through education, um, you know, things like complex um, abstract systems, even language, for example, which is probably par excellence, you know, the system through which we begin to understand what abstraction means and begin to manipulate it. And finally, the point is that you have to really be able to understand abstract thinking before you become capable of manipulating it. Now, when AI can mimic that, we'll be talking about a completely different kettle of fish. Thanks, Jenny. No, that's great. Uh, thank you very much. So I'll get Max to come back and re respond to that, respond to anything he wants, or bring in entirely new points that uh, you'd like to uh, like to bring in. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks for all those points. I, I should probably come back to Jenny first. Um, I, I, I suppose this idea that, that there is a kind of exceptionalism with, with when it comes to intelligence, that, that somehow humans are, are at the pinnacle of it. And I'm not saying that we, we are not um, 
in some ways more intelligence. And I think language is a, is a key difference. You know, there's a reason why um, we are in the place that we are yet. You know, we have primates who are also social and, and form societies, um, some of them very complex, who aren't. And arguably, language is, is at the heart of that. But I suppose that this kind of... It, it, it is uncomfortable to think that that in in some ways that this kind of uh, these ideas around intelligence um almost like a the kind of the latest chapter of the copernican revolution i i think we need to remove ourselves from this idea that we are somehow exceptional with regards to you know uh, the rest of the animal kingdom in many ways we are of course but i think to say that 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 other types of intelligence are somehow lesser than ours is, is quite a, a difficult point. I agree to di digest, but I think if, again, we go back to the definition, and I said, you know, in my initial uh, pitch that, that it's hard to find an agreed upon definition. And I think obviously this is showing it because the, the definition of intelligence, which you are taking is very different from my own. Um, and I suppose just as a final point, this idea of, you know, needing to understand abstract thoughts enabled uh, in order to manipulate it, I'll probably, you know, the, the oft used kind of counter argument to that is that our species weren't suddenly, you know, within one generation suddenly had the power to understand abstract thought and therefore manipulate it. It happened over many, many generations. So my counter question to you, I suppose, is at what point do, did, the, did the intelligence that we have start? And, and at what point did our except, exceptionalism start? Because if it was a, a specific point, like you're saying, you know, this ability to manipulate abstract thoughts, then, then was there a cutoff point to that in a single kind of generation? Or was this a, a kind of cumulative things over time? Um, but I totally accept your point, And I think it comes down to this kind of uh, difficulty of defining something like intelligence and and I think Helen you said it you know this idea about intelligence not being about knowledge and what the book does so well um, and I think that's a really key point about what do we mean when we talk about intelligence because you know I would agree that, that Alan Turing's version of it um, that it's just a big computer isn't right and I think the book does well to show that um, but I also think, Helen, another thing you said about, you know, uh, the book being about humanity, and I think that's entirely right. And I think when people ask me kind of what am I most excited about when it comes to AI, I think it's largely what it can teach us about our own minds and our own intelligence. And I think, um, again, the book kind of does well to at least sort of dig into that a little bit about, you know, um, how our intelligence would differ to something like a, a kind of super intelligent AI. Um, the stuff about the, the history, I, I didn't really understand that either about why it was a kind of counterfactual uh, universe, a kind of distorted history. Um, I wasn't sure whether it was entirely necessary myself, but um, Helen, from what you said about, you know, how the changes might sort of, um, these small changes might lead to, to sort of uh, bigger changes down the line. I suppose in that sense, it could be seen as a way of, of showing just how kind of chaotic human society is. Um, and, you know, uh, sort of the, the oft sort of quoted butterfly effect, maybe that was part of it. Um, and then I think that the, Joel, I think you said something about it 
feeling a bit kind of contrived and certain bits were, were science sort of trying to explain the sort of science explainers. And I think I would probably tend to agree with that. Um, and I think there was a review in the LRB which said a similar sort of thing. And it felt like these were very kind of distinct. Uh, you had the kind of human stories and then the sort of AI science bits. But if I'm being generous to Ian McEwen, which I always like to be, um, possibly that was something that he did on purpose because he was sort of trying to show this distinction between the two worlds, between the kind of the, the artificial kind of scientifically based or scientifically grounded idea of what intelligence is and, and, and what it means uh, when it's kind of in humans, which as we've kind of all said is, is quite uh, messy. Um, yeah. And the, and the, Demis Hassabis, I was quite shocked to see him in there and to see that he had spoken to him at the end. And I'm not sure he would have particularly liked the outcome of the book. I'd be interested to hear what he thought about it because I think Ian McEwen was essentially directly challenging his kind of, I can't remember what the quote was, you know, using uh, solving intelligence and then solving in, using intelligence to solve everything else. I think the book is a direct challenge to the fact that we're a long way off that, even if we think what we're creating are kind of intelligent machines. Okay, thanks, Max. Well, there's plenty of other things we can pursue the discussion on intelligence and consciousness and the development. There's a history and politics thing, which seems a bit weird, but does that fit in? And is that something McEwen does at other times? Um, there's the trial. And then, as Helen wrote, you know, discussing Ian McEwen, we've done it at the book club for like 10, 15 years, ever since we did Saturday. Um, and uh, uh, which was to do with the Iraq war and everybody disagreed with each other on what it was all about and what, what we thought of it. So um, there's always plenty of food for thought. So is that, and, uh, any questions, anything people want to raise? I tend to agree with Jenny's definition of intelligence. Um, but I think you have to discuss, I mean, I'm in another book club. I've only just started coming to these discussions. But from my point of view, you do have to discuss what's in the book. I mean, the book is a book and you've got to evaluate it, you know, what it teaches us. And I think that there are um, elements of the book that are extremely um, provocative because I think, you could, I think what he's ultimately saying is the most human and, uh, the, you know, the biggest act of humanity in the book is destroying the um, machine, you know, because it's going to, they think it's going to be ruining their lives. Obviously, it still does ruin their lives, but they didn't know that when they did it. And I think that it's a kind of, uh, it has these kind of juxtapositions within the book. And I think he always does that in his writing, which I think is really uh, interesting, where he kind of, he has two things which kind of counterpose one another, which sheds light on the, the thing itself. And so I think that, you know, there's what Adam does, which he thinks is, you know, the way forward. And there's what they do. And I think any normal person, when he's got that hammer raised, you would want him to smash his head in because that's just, you know, I can't imagine anybody was sitting there rooting for the machine, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm callous yeah. and unfair, but to me, um, that was important. So. I think that, that that is really interesting that he has the two things. He also has the two things of the child, uh, the love of the child and the love of Adam. And I think it's all very Freudian and I don't pretend to want to go into all of that. But I think the fact that they both sort of love the mother figure, uh, but one is 
um, you know, very destructive. One is very real and very formative in terms of the well-being of the child. And I think there's some just beautiful little parallel things that he does that are really good. Um, and I would say, I think it's great that it's set in 1982. I think it's a really, it's a, it's a device and often devices are just clunky and, you know, but as a literary device, he's, I think what he's trying to show, this is my take on it, is that, you know, science could go at various speeds depending upon, you know, what people think, you know, so Turing lives, so then science can take off, you can have all this AI, you can have the development of self-driving cars, all blah, 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 blah. Um, but humanity, you know, isn't just about science, it's about, you know, working out our relationships. And so these things change things, but it hasn't fundamentally changed the course of history. I mean, it sort of has, but only in a kind of uh, paradoxical way. And I think that that's what he's trying to contrast is kind of human intelligence to just science. And I think it's a really cleverly done thing to show that the world kind of models through in the same sort of way that it isn't just science that changes us. And so that, in that sense, I, d I didn't agree with what Jenny said. I think it's an entirely clever literary device to try to force you to think about um, the, you know, what, what's important in terms of human progress. You could say science is the most important thing in terms of human progress, but he's trying to show you something else is important. Now, you know, you may not agree with his politics, but I think he's right to say that we're not, we don't just come down to science. Uh, Richard. Thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, Max, for your introduction and, and Helen for really interesting comments. Um, uh, like quite a few people in the room, um, I started reading McEwen back in First Love, Last Rites, the short, uh, short stories and Cement Garden. Um, and so I've kind of been there from the start, but I dipped out in the middle. So um, I've seen the film Atonement and uh, there's a few in the middle I don't know. But I've really been following him quite, quite closely uh, since uh, Saturday and Chesil Beach and Nutshell. And I think Helen's points about the morality um, and humanity are, are, are crucial to, to, to what McEwen is putting forward to us and actually putting forward to us in different forms in those other novels as well. This is almost like a bringing together of quite a few themes that he's been dealing with for a while. Um, and uh, Nutshell is much more of a rip-roaring um, uh, take on, um, on Hamlet from the perception of a uh, baby in the womb, which is fantastic lots of moral questions and uh, the recent one which escapes me the name escapes me about um about brexit uh, is a flip flip on kafka's uh, uh, metamorphosis but if you look back to his early work and you think about what he's done and i agree with Helen, i love the, the way that every time he introduced a bit of history it was just a twist on what you know then thatcher loses the falklands war ben gets into power ben's in the brighton uh, uh, Grand Hotel when it gets gets bombed and all that flipping on one level as a device I think is very clever because go back to Cement Garden what does he do he puts this household where incest is happening inside it and strips everything away and makes you think about one household there's a certain irony there because what he does is actually very filmic but very few of his films actually transfer to film very very well although Cement Garden, uh, made by a French, uh, French company, was quite good. Think about what he does with the, the setting of um, changing this, what Max called counterfactual universe, 
but things that we know very well, it's that awkward feeling between the familiar and being completely flipped. He wants us to think about the main moral questions by taking us out of our comfort zone. And I think that's what the, 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 the shifted history does. But I, I also like Helen's interpretation about how it's making us think about in, in invention. Think about Charlie and Miranda. Where are their friends? Really? I mean, there's one mention of some friends that she goes to visit, but I, there are no friends. This, is, this isn't a real world. This is all very divisive, very McEwen, that makes us think about that flat, that dingy flat in Clapham, uh, where this triangular relationship is happening. And actually, one, the one thing I disagree with with Helen is just, I didn't want him to put the hammer in the back of the head of, of, of Adam. I, I really didn't want that to happen. You saw it coming. Uh, it was the shining moment. And I just didn't, I just didn't want him to do that. But um, at least he got told off by cheering. Thanks, Richard. Karen, Thanks. You're, you're on, yeah. Cheers. Uh, thank you. I, I did really enjoy reading this book. Um, I just wanted to talk about the, uh, the situation with the, the rape um, because if, we if we're talking about different kinds of intelligence and um, humanity, obviously that's a very extreme example and it's something that um, Adam is, finds very difficult to understand. When he first meets Miranda, he immediately says that, that uh, she's a, a malicious liar and it takes us, obviously it takes a while for that to evolve in the plot. But I, I find the character of Charlie frustrating in the sense that he he's an anthropologist and he says uh you know that we we don't get involved morally we we just observe and adam is is able to be quite different from that even though he is artificially intelligent and so i find that contrast between adam and charlie uh quite interesting and i thought that adam did have a point because a lot of the issues around the rape are kind of they're societal um and how far the rapist is responsible for the, the suicide, which happens later. Um, it, the character of the rapist is obviously um, quite despicable in the way that he's portrayed when we finally do get to meet him. But I thought that that was interesting. And it's only right at the end when Charlie actually does something, when, when Charlie d commits the act at the end, um, that you, you kind of finally see something, him actually taking some sort of action and doing something. Um, and in doing so, it's, it's his hero, Alan Turing, who then who he then sort of falls out with, who he gets into trouble with. Um, so I thought that was an interesting point. That's great. Thanks, Karen. Gorin's was particularly despicable, the way it's portrayed. It does that very well. Um, I've got a number of hands. Um, okay, I'll take a couple more, then I'll bring Max in. Uh, Jenny, do you want to come in again? I'm surprised by just discussing human intelligence uh, Helen interpreted it as sort of prioritizing science over the development of, of society. But I wanted to, you know, the, the, the whole moral issue um, in the book to me was, wasn't terribly challenging somehow. You know, clearly if you've just got a machine operating according to rules, then morality will be very straightforward and, you know, you, you, you will follow through with such things, you know, whereas obviously morality is a very messy question in the way that Max outlined very well, I thought. But 
I just couldn't connect that with all the other strands in the book. I found them so, so disconcerting without any real development of either character or of the themes of morality and intelligence. Um, you know, the introduction of the young boy, for instance, it just seemed so implausible to me you know, that a young couple like this would even be considered for adoption and, you know, and, and fostering or anything like that. It just seems such an extraordinary thing to introduce. And, and similarly there, you, you know, the whole rape thing just seemed so disconnected. It was like throwing in a lot of, you know, moral dilemmas or relationship issues where I didn't get the feeling that anything was really being developed in terms of a human relationship, um, you know, or a relationship with, with, with it, in fact, even a relationship with the, with the robot. Uh, Fiona. Um, yeah, I, I agree, actually, with Jenny. I, I, I thought the book raised loads of really interesting questions, uh, but I found it quite difficult to get a sense of what the author thought from, from those. I felt like he was trying to figure it out at the same time. But what I found interesting was that he was just so down on humans and that all of these moral situations that come up, I, I agree, I didn't feel like those relationships were observed in the way that you think oh my god yeah I really recognize that I've seen things like that the the situation seemed quite contrived and um, he shows quite a lot of contempt for humans like Mark's family um, I just I just didn't quite believe it and I and I also just thought god you really hate people like this and it just didn't it, it just I, I wasn't really convinced that he knows many people like that or you know it, it just felt like he was describing something that he doesn't know in in that uh, situation and and the main protagonists are pretty awful I mean what Miranda does is really terrible I mean regardless of how bad Gorringe is it's 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 appalling and it feels like at the end of the whole book he has everybody behaving like in a, in a way that actually it's only Adam, the machine, who actually behaves, you know, does the right thing in the end. And he's the one who sort of pays the money to, to good causes and, and all this kind of thing. So it feels like he's sort of saying, look, the machine is better than all of you lot. <laughs> and I, I thought that was quite interesting. And, uh, um, and he's the only one who seems to sort of demonstrate some kind of informed moral judgment. And, um, uh, but it was more that the, the other character, Adam seemed to be better drawn, weirdly, even though he was a machine, he seemed to be better drawn uh, to me than the other characters. I didn't recognise real people in the other characters so much. Uh, Joel. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up, that was really interesting you saying that Fiona, about him, you know, some of the characters not being particularly likeable. And I guess it does come back to that kind of messy morality in a way. And um, <clears throat> especially that thing about, you know, kind of Adam as the sort of person who seems to be the person who does the right thing. But there is, a, I felt like there was a question about what the right thing, because obviously Miranda had behaved despicably and you could say that she'd done it for reasons of trying to sort of, you know, the, on one hand, exact revenge, but on the other hand, to sort of see justice and you kind of know it's wrong. And that's where our sort of messy morality lies. But I also wanted to just, I suppose more a question really, and Jenny, you mentioned it, you know, about how there's this sort of view of the human mind as machine. And, you know, I, I sort of feel that that's one of the sort of big threads that we've through of a lot of our sort of anxieties 
about AI. And, and again, it comes back to that kind of the view, you know, sort of in sort of modern science terms, it's very sort of physical. So, you know, um, <clears throat> the material world as opposed to metaphysical and, you know, you think about the ideas of free will and things that are sort of these debates that are raging in science at the moment. And most of the scientists who are, you know, sort of behind the AI at the moment, uh, you know, Turing, uh, Demis Hassabis, um, some, you know, I think other people as well, have this very, everything is down to the sort of physical, sort of um, material world. So, you know, even though people know that the human mind is very difficult, you know, to really understand and consciousness and it's so complex, there's still a very material view, which I think is quite problematic. So I was interested in Max and other people, what other people feel and whether there is almost a, a sort of trying, seeing humans as more machine-like in some ways. Okay. Uh, Bruce, and then I'll get Max to come in and then we, yep. My question is about the title of the book, Machines Like Me, or Machines Like Me. Now, I think we're supposed to believe that it's machines like me because in Adam's final conversation with them, he talks about himself in the context of machines like me. But I wondered about Max, and somebody put a question in chat about Miranda's asking Max, are you real? And I thought at the time, that's a very strange thing to ask somebody. Um, and I'm wondering whether machines like me isn't actually the narrator. Is, is Charlie the machine? That's my question. Max, do you want to come back on a number of things and then we'll... Uh... Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to go through. Um, <clears throat> I suppose, you know, is, is, is Charlie the machine comes down to something that, that a few people have raised about whether the sort of human brain is any more than, than a big sort of computer. Um, and I suppose, I think that's, that's one of the, the interesting aspects of the, the book, I suppose, that I would probably agree that doesn't really get developed that much, but it's sort of laid out. Um, and I think in a way, even though I said, you know, maybe we should question our kind of in exceptionalism as, as humans, I do think what the book does show, which I think is, is really important, is that the human brain and the human mind as we know it um, is probably a lot more complicated um, than, than machines. But at the same time, I think there is a clever thing that goes on um, that sort of goes back to the Turing test, which obviously isn't uh, particularly sort of um, modern, but um, there's a kind of, there's a switch, uh, I think in the middle of the, the book where um, maybe there's more than one switch, where, where Charlie sort of, it goes from believing Adam to, you know, he's not a conscious being and he's just a kind of computer and there's nothing sort of, there's no ghost in the machine. And then he decides uh, once that Adam does um, sort of sleep with Miranda, um, he decides that he is, he is a machine. And I think she says something like, you know, would you be upset with me if, if I went to bed with a vibrator because that's all Adam is. Um, and so then he suddenly does become a sort of conscious being when it suits him. And then, 
and then finally towards the end, I think before he he plants the hammer in in the head of um, of Adam, he sort of he says something about him, you know, him not being conscious. And I think it's it's a really important question that that sort of the field of AI and neuroscience has been grappling with and continues to grapple with, which is, you know, how do we, how do we kind of uh, measure consciousness or, or a kind of intelligence? And we've already spoken about the difficulties in, in defining intelligence, but it's the same with, with kind of consciousness. And, and unfortunately for us, a lot of this stuff isn't about um, any kind of objective measure, at least not one that we've found so far. It's, it's about people's subjective experiences because that's what, kind of being conscious is um and so i think the book in a way kind of of highlights that the the if you're looking at the kind of distinction between what a you know a human brain is and what a kind of you know ai brain is it's are we ever going to be able to to answer that question because we're not going to have access um at least not at the moment to the kind of subjective experience of those of those beings so it's a very long-winded way of saying, you know, is Charlie the machine? Well, he might as well be because we have no idea whether or not he's a conscious being. The only person who knows if he's conscious or not, if he's more than a machine, is is him. And it's the the problem they often talk about is the zombie problem, where I have no idea. You know, I know I'm conscious. At least I tell you that I'm conscious. But um, the only way I know that you're conscious is that you tell me. Um, and so I think. The, the title, at least the way that I kind of read it, is is the fact that in a way we kind of, you know, we we don't know for sure whether or not um, any any other human is a machine or not, because, I mean, there are other ways you can tell because they haven't invented human level AI, so it's probably uh, obvious. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, I think the the stuff about Turing uh, not being alive, I think just as an added point to that, I think it's possibly uh, a sort of backhanded criticism of how artificial intelligence research is being done at the moment, because I think Alan Turing decides to make it all open source. Um, and obviously a lot of it at the moment is being done behind closed doors in the hands of uh, sort of big uh, multinational corporations. And so, you know, whether that's kind of stalling our, our progress. Um, and then finally, this this idea of, of you know, humans being bad. And, and I, I would agree that, you know, a lot of the kind of humans in this book um, don't come across particularly well. Um, but I suppose my slight challenge to that is I, I, I don't know whether he's saying that humans are, are bad necessarily he's just saying that humans are humans and they are exceptional in the sense of the way that we operate and the the, the type of intelligence and consciousness that we have is, is very specific to humans and so um i think to to, to say that he's he's somewhere implying that that all humans are bad i think he's saying that humans are, are different and humans are messy and humans are complicated um, and, you know, the moral question about, you know, the, the rape charge is, it, I mean, it's not as, as, um, as hard maybe to dig down into and decipher about whether or not it's, it's bad or good. And he possibly could have picked a, a better example, but I think he's trying to show um, that, that it's messy and that, that humans are like that. Um, so I don't necessarily think he's, he's 
trying to sort of beat down on humans. I think he's just trying to show that that we're humans at the end of the day. No, that's fine, Max. And I'll find if there's a final round, if people got any last questions they want to ask. Okay, I had the one other take I had from it was the discussion about consciousness and how in the machines that led to suicide, which I thought was very interesting. Um, and that, you know, the the kind of the, the conclusion in the book is that the condition of consciousness, you know, once you are conscious, because the machines are saying they have their consciousness, that it ultimately leads them to some kind of suicide because of the despair of you know, what it what it's like to be human is just so desperate. Uh, and yet, of course, the humans don't all commit suicide. And so I thought that, that was very interesting. And I thought that it related. So I thought that discussion about suicide was interesting and I'm really interested in what other people think about that and what Max thinks of it because I think it was a very um you know it was a little bit like the Hamlet thing where you're sort of you know you have that sort of existential um uh, concern and I haven't read his more recent stuff so I don't know what he's what what he's written about that but I thought that was interesting and I thought that the point that Jenny made which I thought was very good is that the point about human intelligence or perhaps better human consciousness because i think intelligence is not the same as consciousness and i think we've there's been some conflating of it here i think the the reason why i think it's very interesting that adam for all his concern about you know thinking and all he does is that he's completely uninterested in the societal picture this is why i think the falklands war and all of that stuff is in there because i think it's trying to show that he he learns from his narrow experience and his reading and but he has no kind of um abstract view of society and i think that point about um the fact that human intelligence is able to abstract i think you know this is digging into my very vague knowledge of kant but i think kant has that idea that you have you know the the eye of god is the the ability to be able to see society as a whole and that's what you know we are able to do and that's that's a very kind of profound thing and that adam he goes to the rallies he listens to all the same stuff that um uh um uh, whatever his name is charlie does but he doesn't have the same it doesn't touch him it doesn't you know it it, it isn't something which he experiences in the same way and, and when miranda and charlie have the discussions about the world, he doesn't join in those discussions. And I think that's really a very interesting um, contrast. And I, th I think it's deliberate. I think that's one of the reasons he has all the social stuff going on. I mean, he always has social stuff in his novels, but I think that's one of the things that he's trying to show is that humans' ability to have kind of, you know, I guess, first of all, to empathize, to have empathy and to think of others and to have a kind of, a greater sense of humanity itself is what you know keeps us going he says oh well of course i i'm going to live because i love miranda although he never quite says that but but for humanity yeah we can have really shitty things happening to us but we have a greater sense of abstract uh, you know where we are in the world and we care and i think that's really very different so I'm, I'm, I realise I'm the person who's most keen on this book in this discussion, but I really did like this book. I think it's very interesting. It's got lots of devices, some of which you may not lot like, but I think it's got a great kind of um, eye on what it means to be human. Thank you. I, I tend to agree with your approach. 
from, from why we always discuss McEwen. So, Abby. Yeah, this is a question to Max because I'm a, a newcomer to this uh, McEwen books. I never read him before. Um, can you tell me a little bit of his background? Just as probably everyone else know about it except me because I got his book from Kindle and there's not much information on that. Okay. Yeah, if anybody wants to come in on, on McEwen, uh, Jenny. I thought Helen's distinction between intelligence and consciousness, by the way, is very important. And just going back to something Max raised right at the beginning, you know, when did our abilities, you know, to, to consciously abstract things, I mean, it goes back centuries, right? Well before the Renaissance, right? There were civilizations that were capable of abstract thought and, and, and systematization and so forth. So it is centuries old. But we've, you know, the whole point about human intelligence is that you have built on culture as it has developed. And the other thing is, of course, morality is, is very historically and culturally specific. And, you know, McEwen is writing about, you know, today's sense of morality. And I thought it was rather a sort of limited exploration, actually, which is why I didn't like the book. But... Um, Bridget's question was interesting about who really was the machine. And I think that confusion of whether Charlie, Charlie was the machine or not, it's very, very interesting. It hadn't crossed my mind, actually. But it, it reminded me of a book I read very, very recently um, by a Canadian writer, Ian Reid, I-A-I-N, uh, uh, yeah, in Reed called Foe. And that has the most fascinating um, look at AI and human beings. I, I would really strongly recommend it. It would take you an afternoon to read. Okay, thank you. So any final points? I mean, I don't know a lot about McEwen's background, but there's a series of books we've discussed over his book club over 15 years. Yeah. And he wrote, as Richard was saying before, Atonement must have been 20, yeah. 25 years ago, through A Child in Time, through Saturday, which was about the Iraq War, yeah. uh, Solar, which was on, uh, on the, the environment and environmentalism. And he just deals with all these contemporary moral problems in slightly unusual ways often and yeah. draws them out. So Solar, I mean, he, he himself is concerned about climate change and the environment, but he wrote this book called Solar, which I find hilarious because the, uh, uh, the, the, the main characters who are very concerned about global warming are extremely, extremely unsympathetic. He just wrote, a, it's a cracking novel which deals with all these moral dilemmas. And mm -hmm. a lot of the Green Lobby were up in arms because they were saying, how could he write this? book when he's on our side but he just wrote a really good novel grappling with these uh you know you know difficult issues and flawed people who were trying to deal with these difficult issues and that's what he does historically and so often it's not then some of these books may never get in the canon or whatever of a literature but in terms of contemporary fiction which our book club deals with the book when it when ian McEwan produces a new novel or uh, Kazuya Shiguro, who's the other one, uh, they're usually worth reading. I personally, and I don't know, maybe it's just me, but 
but we we discussed the buried giant by Ishiguro about three mm. or four years ago. But Ella Whelan introduced it. But but when I'm looking at what's happening around us now, and the kind of complete transformation of society overnight in this way, and uh, people trying to remember what it was like beforehand, you just I, you come back to that novel because the, the people may not even know themselves, but they're sensitive to influences that are going on in society and people novelists good novelists pick up things and put them in their put them in their books almost without knowing it as it happens Ishiguro is actually quite good at explaining what he's written but there's a lot of people often they uh, pick up things they're sensitive attuned to things happening and, and and reflect them accurately in their novels and you know McEwen often does it in a slightly weird way which he, which, which he does in slightly left field often but um uh, usually they're, they're, they're very good uh, they're very good value uh, Richard mentioned the cockroach book which was uh, the one in relation to Brexit which was short novella which was just too much for me because it was relent, you know, re relentlessly one-sided as he's known for on that issue and uh, to me it didn't have redeeming qualities but Richard found it very interesting and got quite a lot out of it so I mean he's, he's just a, a you know a good writer like that over over a over a very long, over a very long time. Okay. Uh, a couple more people, couple more people. Uh, Pamela. So I just wanted to comment on a couple of things that people have said. So um, it's interesting with people saying um, about Charlie being the machine, because um, for the start of it, I actually thought that Miranda, I thought there was going to be a twist where Miranda was some Eve, from a sort of um, earlier trial of these robots. And um, because she just seemed so two-dimensional and so flat and she didn't really seem to care that much about Charlie or about anything. And um, so I was, and then she obviously had sex with Adam and I was just convinced that she was AI for a bit. Um, and then sort of you find out that the reason that she's sort of so withdrawn is actually because she's had this really traumatic experience. Um, and, and then I suppose it's quite interesting what you're all saying about the title because um, there are, and because Turing's in the book and there almost is this Turing test when Charlie and Adam and Miranda go to the father's house and um, the father mistakes uh, Charlie for P. And that is almost like that's, that means Adam passed the Turing test and to Turing's mind that means that Adam would be conscious. I don't personally think there's really any question. I think there's a difference between intelligence and consciousness. Um, because you, know, you could say that a calculator is to some extent intelligent, but it's, it's not conscious. Um, but I don't really think that there's any question over whether Adam is conscious. Um, I don't really think that his consciousness has to be like a human consciousness for him to be conscious. You know, I've got my dog dreaming here next to me and my dog is clearly conscious but not conscious in the same way um, as I am or but you know even different people what Max was saying about the zombie problem um, and that you know we can only really know ourselves that we're conscious and we can't know for sure that other people even feel things in the same way that we do and there's there was bits I kind of didn't really like about the book so there's a couple of you that said that there was bits that were frustrating and because I am by trade a philosopher uh, I was kind of hoping to get a bit more out of the AI discussion from it um, than I necessarily did and there certainly were points where Charlie 
you know, Adam kept saying that he loved Miranda, um, but, you know, was just questioning whether he's just saying this, but he doesn't have the feelings going along with it. Um, so, you know, he might sort of say that he does or behave like he does. He writes these weird haikus that don't make any sense. Um, <laughs> but uh, does he really feel the love that Charlie feels? Um, but I don't really think there's any question over whether, whether he's conscious um, in, in, in a way. Uh, there was something that someone started to pick up on with the machine sort of suicides. I did think that was, so when um, Adam first wants to override, that, like they've got that sort of override switch on the back of his neck. I can't remember what he called it. Um, but then Charlie finds out that all of the machines have uh, sort of wanted to disable that override switch. And um, I suppose, again, I thought that the book was going to go in a different way of that, you know, this worry that if we create AI that it's going to take over and it's going to want to destroy us because when Charlie tries to press the switch, um, Adam breaks his arm uh, and thought that it was kind of going down that dark route. Um, but then there was something a bit more interesting with all the machines kind of uh, almost self-sabotaging and committing suicide um, and someone raised that question about you know it was suggested that that's because the this world is just too terrible for them or they know too much and so um, they decide to kind of make themselves dumb and mute uh, but then that so that kind of comes back to someone saying about this being a Prometheus story or like Frankenstein where um, you know is it right or is it cruel to kind of create something like this? Uh, and I think Max raised that at the start of would it, is it kind of actually just quite cruel to throw this conscious being into the world when it didn't kind of choose to? Um, but then I suppose we're exactly the same as that. Uh, and we've got this sort of parallel, I think, between Adam and Mark, the, the little boy, is that Mark was kind of thrown into this world with parents that don't really care and they don't love him and they want to get rid of him. And actually, Adam is almost quite similar in that, you know, Charlie is kind of unsure whether he wants him. He realises that he's just blown all of the money that he'll probably ever have on this machine just out of sort of being interested in mechanics and then you know, he doesn't really seem to ever really want him at any point, um, even though Adam still sort of thinks that he's got something to live for. Um, and I just, yeah, think that actually that that's quite interesting. Is, um, and what maybe people thought about that is that there's maybe a bit of a parallel between Adam and Mark, that they're sort of both kind of, unwanted and thrown into the world. Obviously Mark is kind of wanted later on, um, but doesn't start off to be that way. But yeah, I thought there were there were um, some interesting things that, uh, within it. My favourite bit was definitely the end, um, where I didn't really expect Turing to say that, because in the other interaction between Turing and Charlie, it seemed like he was kind of talking about the robots and this, like, they're just fascinating, it's just interesting that there's this sort of self-sabotage going on but um yeah in the end kind of say i was sort of charged for being homosexual and that law is unfair um and there is no law against killing a robot but i think there should be and you were wrong to do that but i wasn't wrong to 
to be homosexual. I thought that um, that was a that was my favourite bit of the book, which was lucky because it was right at the end. Um, so it sort of redeemed it a bit for me because I thought that a lot of the stuff to do with AI was um, kind of already trodden ground, and I didn't find it um, as philosophically interesting as I hoped that I would, even though there were other things in the book that were interesting. No, that's that's good. I I couldn't get over all the way through how he didn't have much money and he'd blown it all on this. You know, he'd previously been struck off for fraud or whatever. He was a bit of a you know dodgy character in some ways. He'd obviously done these bad things. Um, you know, st struck off for the lawyer. Now he was playing the stock market, which is not you know, not exactly the most not exactly a key worker or whatever in the phrase of today. Um, and then he wastes all his money on this thing. So, and then when um, the robot starts doing it for him, he kind of loses yeah. very yeah. little purpose in life he had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Therese. Just something that um, about McEwen rather than the book that I thought was interesting was he was a very rare British name of any sort who supported Salman Rushdie. He gave him shelter, and he's spoken up in his support over a number of years when most people from this country wouldn't. Um, so that's just you know, something I thought was interesting about him as a person. And um, if you keep your eyes open for him around Tottenham Court Road, you might see him wandering anonymously along, which was obviously something Salman Rushdie wouldn't be able to do. I think he lives just to the west of Tottenham Court Road. And most people seem not to recognize him. Okay, thank you. I didn't know that about Simon Rushdie, so it's interesting to know. Okay, so, so Max, do you want to have a few minutes to make your final points? Anything you want to leave us with uh, to, to mull over afterwards? Well, I, yeah, there's so much to, res to respond to, so I'll just try and do as much of that. I think on Ian McEwen, I don't know much about his history, but on the, the Simon Rushdie point, that's how I sort of came to know him via Christopher Hitchens, who obviously uh, was another of Salman Rushdie's sort of uh, defenders. And I believe uh, they became quite good friends. Um, but I suppose, you know, for me, the book that really, um, you know, sucked me into the world of Ian McEwan was Enduring Love, which I read oh, yeah. uh, when I was in university. And I think I, I totally agree with everyone that that he, you know, he, he sort of explores these, these moral quandaries um, and big societal issues. But I think, you know, something like Enduring Love, I just inhaled that. And I think that's because I think at the end of the day, he is, he is a sort of master of um, the sort of, you know, the micro, uh, the microscopic kind of interactions that happen between humans. And that's um, why, you know, I've always loved his writing. And, and, and I do think, you know, despite, agreeing with a lot of what's been said about um you know it being possibly quite insular i do think the the sort of dynamics between the three main characters um he does capture in a way that meant that i kind of you know uh, it was definitely a page turner for me um intelligence and consciousness totally agree i mean uh, yeah I, they they are completely separate things uh, and apologies if i was conflating them i suppose um the point uh, in conflating them uh, perhaps uh, gives insight into into the sort of uh, the theories or group of theories that I think 
you know, best explain our consciousness, which is that it's some sort of emergent phenomena from intelligence. And so if, if you know, a, a species or an individual has a certain type of intelligence, then if the emergent sort of aspect of it is true, then, then I would argue that that consciousness would be sort of molded in much the same way. And I think, Pamela, you said about your dog, um, and I think that's really important. Yes, it is. It is conscious, but I suppose the the type of conscious experience it has is is very different from our own. Um, and there's that famous uh, essay, you know, what's it like to be a bat? Um, so uh, yeah, I suppose my my conflation was was for that reason. Um, the suicide stuff I thought was <clears throat> was interesting. I I, um, I suppose at at first, I sort of thought it was a bit of a lazy way of sort of encapsulating that tortured genius idea, which I think is um, quite a kind of simplistic uh, view. But I think, Helen, you said it when you were talking about um, this kind of idea of, of, you know, Adam going to, you know, uh, rallies and stuff and just not really feeling part of it. And I think if, if we were to look at suicide in a similar sort of way, I think you know maybe what he lacks is is this kind of um this feeling that that so many people uh who who struggle with mental health problems feel that they're sort of not part of this continually unfolding picture that is kind of you know human history whether that's on a kind of macro scale or a very micro scale within their own families and relationships um so i thought that was interesting um and yeah, just, I suppose, uh, on a final point, I, I, I like the parallel between Adam and Mark as well. Um, Pamela, I think you raised that. I thought the bit about um, them getting to program Adam's personality at the start was, was, uh, was quite interesting. And I have no children, so I can't um, speak it from that point of view, but I was a teenager once, and I can very much tell you that my mum had, uh, I think, very little control over what my kind of personality uh, traits were. Um, but yeah, I suppose as a, as a kind of final point, I, I think, you know, whilst there are aspects of the book um, that I, I really enjoyed, and you know, I, I said in my introductory statement, I think this this sort of distinction between human intelligence and or, consciousness or whatever we want to call it um and and a kind of machine uh intelligence um is one that that doesn't really get covered perhaps that much um and i think i totally agree that it, it's um the book is great at kind of reflecting back at what what it means to be human and i suppose um to finish on the the question of the title maybe a, a better way of thinking about it is instead of machines like me is is our machines like me as a kind of question um and that i think is maybe what he's sort of trying to possibly explore uh, in the book yeah, thank you max. thank you max thanks to max and jeff for that book club if you'd like to attend future salons, forums or debates, head to academyofideas.org.uk and check out our upcoming events. And if you enjoyed that discussion, how about giving us a donation? All our online events during lockdown are free, so we're counting on your generosity to keep us going. Thanks again, and stay tuned for more from the Academy of Ideas.